0: So turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. As you're turning there, I would love for you to... uh warm up your fingers a little bit, do a little finger exercise, kind of snap them here, kind of do this little number, because I'm going to turn you to too many places. You didn't know that you could turn to too many places in the Bible, but you can, and we're going to cross that line today. And I just want to apologize for it up front. You know that's not my usual manner, uh, but uh, we're on the hunt today uh, for something, and we're going to see it all over the pages of Scripture, Matthew chapter 21. When I say home... What pops into your mind? When I say home, what pops into your mind? Is it the address that you just came from? Uh, Is it, uh, you know, does going back home mean for you a return back to your parents' place or to the place that you grew up? What does home mean for you? It may be, you know, like for us, a one bedroom apartment. That was our first place, Amanda and I. And then we upgraded to a town home, which was actually less nice than the apartment. And then we got our first house and did a little fixer upper on that thing. And uh, another point in our marriage, right after we were married, Uh, we went and took this short ministry assignment, five-month ministry assignment in England, and the church that we were working for didn't have a house for us to stay in, so they rented a house from another church, so you can already see the awkwardness in it, and so we were like living in a church that didn't have anything to do with us, had a nice apartment flat uh, on the second story of this church, and so they would give us the key, and we'd like go to church and home at the same time, which is a little weird if you're a minister, you know, you never can literally get away from work, and uh, the, the... if anybody live in England, like it's just kind of an odd place like our washing machine where we would wash our clothes was in the middle of the kitchen. Like just kind of weird to do laundry of dirty clothes and cook in the same space. awkward. Uh, the house didn't have a dryer, so we went to the equivalent of the home Depot, which I think is called BQ there and uh, we bought a dryer, but there's no utility room in this apartment, so we put it in the guest bedroom. Uh, so we had a bed and a dryer. so if you came to stay with us while we were there, bed for you and if you needed drying needs right there in the same room odd place and it had this courtyard that was in the church that was like our yard and it had a nice old English stone fence around it that was probably up to like face you know so if you wanted to look over the fence you could but you'd kind of have to work to look over there well you know it was England so we were there for months before the sun actually came out so I remember the first time that the sun came out kind of in that springtime we were excited to get outside and we wanted to do a little sunbathing I'm using we as a plural pronoun because this only happened to one of us but I don't want you to know which one of us it happened to that's going to be best for our marriage uh, and uh, you know reputations here and so we went down into the courtyard laid out a blanket and we're just like sunbathing you know we're not wearing swimsuits because it's only like 65 degrees but we have on shorts which no one else on the planet over there had on shorts short sleeves just soaking in the sun and we're reading books we're laying out in the yard and pretty soon we start hearing doors slam like people are parking in the parking lot of the church and it's in the middle of the afternoon on a random day. No one's really supposed to be at the church at that time, and you start hearing like the clippity-clop of dress shoes, you know, and uh, it's weird, and because the fence is, you know, about here, if people want to look over the fence, they can. They're walking on the sidewalk and kind of peering over at us, like what on earth are these people doing, and, and it was kind of weird, and so eventually we got up and looked out, It was a funeral. People were having a funeral. So imagine, you know, you're going to remember Nana and uh, people, Americans, are laid out in the yard of the church. You know, that's, it's just awkward. So when I think of home, I think of being awkward because everywhere I go is awkward, apparently. (laughs) You're thinking of memories now. You're thinking of some that are fun memories. You're thinking of some hard memories. You're thinking of laughter. You're thinking of crime because those are all things that have to do with home. And you're home your address, whatever it is, whether there's a lot of people in it or it's just you. If it's an apartment, if it's a townhome, if it's a starter home, if it's your dream home, if it's you've downsized now, whatever your home is, it is essential to your faith. See, we come together weekly to experience our faith corporately, but your corporate experience cannot replace your personal experience. We make a public profession of Jesus as Lord, but your public profession of Jesus as Lord is only upheld by your private confession of Jesus as Lord. So really, the songs that we sing today only mean something to the degree that they meant something to you on Friday. The words that we're reading today only affect you so deeply as they would have affected you on Wednesday had you read them. Because our corporate experience is built up, upheld, lifted up by our personal experience. And your personal experience most often happens in whatever place you call home. And we're going to see that today in the scripture. Matthew chapter chapter 21. It's the familiar story of Palm Sunday. So this is a true account. Of how Jesus came into Jerusalem on a Sunday this Sunday, in fact, a little less than 2,000 years ago. It says in verse one, "Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Beth- Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, now remember that Mount of Olives, We're going to come back to that. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me." If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 6. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So a little less than 2,000 years ago, on this very Sunday, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Now it mentions a, a place called Bethphage, which is a village on the Mount of Olives. So if you've never been to Jerusalem, or you've never looked it up on the internet, a little geography lesson. Jerusalem, the city of God, the whole story of the Bible really functions in and around Jerusalem, is built on a mountain Uh, There in Israel. Now, it's not a mountain in the way that we would consider it a mountain. You just imagine a very, 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 very large hill. And Jerusalem is built on that hill. Then there's a valley, and on the other side of the valley is the Mount of Olives. Again, not really a mountain in the way that we would think of it, but just a very large and round hill. And so the story is, is Jesus is coming from somewhere uh, on the Mount of Olives. He's riding the donkey. He goes down into the valley, which is called the Kidron Valley. Say Kidron Valley. And then he goes up back into Jerusalem. And as he's going, there's a huge parade. His disciples believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't really understand exactly what that means. And so the crowd is really kind of swept up in all the momentum. And some of the people are taking off their outer garments. If we were wearing cloaks or coats today, they would lay them on the ground and they're shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna, which means God save us, God save us through you, the person that we're shouting this towards. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is giving very, very high and lofty praise to Jesus. And what they're saying by taking off their coats and laying them on the ground is even though you're on a donkey, we don't want that donkey's feet to touch the ground. That's how holy you are. That's how special you are. That's how anointed you are. The people who aren't taking off their clothes and laying them down, they're going to get palm branches and they're just waving them and singing and dancing and singing these psalms as Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives through the valley and back up into Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting, if you read the rest of what happens in this last week of Jesus's life, you know that the crowd that was there singing his praises in less than six days is going to be nowhere to be found. Or if they are there, they're actually saying crucify instead of Hosanna. So something was not ringing true for these people. Or it was true one day and it wasn't true the next day. But what caught my attention this year was not anything about his procession, but about where he came from. Look back at verse 1. It says, Now when they, that's Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphagia, that was a village on the backside of the Mount of Olives, to the Mount of Olives. Now I thought it was interesting that Matthew and some of the other gospel writers, they include that Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives. See, the Mount of Olives was a, a special place in the Scripture. It, it's, it's all the way through, and it holds a very significant meaning. And I want to show you some of that meaning. So I'm going to read a bunch of Scriptures to you. They're going to be on the screen. But again, I'm going to have you turn so many places in the next 30 minutes that I'm not going to ask you to turn to these places because, again, it's going to be bad. And I apologize up front, so don't hold me accountable for it. Because if you say it up front, you're not held accountable. That's the way it works. So, the first place, if you wanted to write this down, is 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30. Remember, I'm not asking you to turn there because I'm a good person. Second Samuel 15, verse 30. This is in the days of King David. King David's actually been pushed out of his own kingdom because his son Absalom wants to take over the throne. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So King David, you've maybe heard of him, he's an awesome king, anointed by God, his son, gets rebellious, causes a little stir, David actually have to leave, leaves his kingdom. So you can imagine him leaving his palace in Jerusalem, coming down out of Jerusalem, through the valley, and up the Mount of Olives, and weeping as he does, then Later on in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, there's a prophecy about the Messiah's return around the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. So the prophecy is when the Messiah returns, when Jesus returns, he's going to land on the Mount of Olives with such force that the mountain splits in two. Now if you go on the internet and you look up that prophecy, you're going to find some Bible scholars who believe that that literally is going to happen, and and you find some Bible, Bible scholars that says, no, that symbolically is going to happen. Either way, we know he's definitely coming back to the Mount of Olives. And I want to show you why. Again, don't turn there because I'm a good person. But Acts chapter 1, this is what it says in verse 9. And when he, this is Jesus, this is post-resurrection, said these things as they went looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So he's ascending up to heaven from earth, to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. Verse 11. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels say, in the very same way that he left from this place and went up to heaven, he's going to return in the exact same way. And where are they? Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Called Olivet, which is another name for the Mount of Olives. So here we have Jesus leaving from the Mount of Olives to go to heaven, and one day he will return to the Mount of Olives. And then the very last verse of the Bible, the last two verses, Revelation chapter 22, this is how the Bible ends, verse 20. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. So the Bible ends with with the invitation for Jesus to come, and come where? Come back to the Mount of Olives. What on earth does this have to do with Palm Sunday? I'm glad you asked. And here's the first place I want you to turn, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Says in verse one, and they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now we know that Jesus doesn't have a home, at least not in the traditional way that most of us have a home. Because what did he say about himself? Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus is homeless? Well, not homeless, maybe in the negative sense that we would say it, but it means that he was a traveling preacher. Preacher, and wherever he went. He had to stay where he, he preached. And sometimes people would open their homes and he would stay with them. The disciples would stay with them. And in other times, they were just out and they would sleep out. So we don't know if as everybody else is going to their houses and Jesus is going to the Mount of Olives, if he and his disciples are just sleeping out on the hillside there somewhere, or he's in one of those uh, villages, Bethany or Bethphage, that's located on the Mount of Olives. But what we do know from the scripture is when everybody else went home, Jesus went to his temporary home when he was in Jerusalem and that is the Mount of Olives. And here's how it's connected to Palm Sunday because I'm always thinking about those people in the parade, the ones who are laying down their coats and the ones who are waving their palm branches because here's what I'm thinking about those people. They're not that much different than I am. Listen, far be it from me to say Hosanna, Hosanna one day and I'm busy the next day. Or, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord one day. And, uh, well, that didn't quite work out the way that I thought it was going to. So, the next day. So I'm thinking when I read the Palm Sunday story, I'm not sure that I'm one of the disciples who's in from beginning to end. I'm thinking maybe I'm more like the crowd. And I want to know what I can do. To make sure that if I say Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday, I'm still saying Hosanna, Hosanna on Friday. And one of the ways that you and I can make sure that happens is to understand that unless your faith is anchored in your home, you may just be one of the voices in the parade. Listen, church is beautiful. I love church. I've given my life to lead the church to build the church but if your faith is primarily anchored in this room it won't last or if it does last you won't like it your faith needs to be anchored to your home and Jesus' temporary home when he was near Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives so we're going to look at three quick things to help us build the kind of home that builds up our faith. So if you were going to write something down, this would be a good thing to write down. Number one, home is where you learn the life of faith. Home is where you learn the life of faith. Matthew chapter 24. If you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 24. says in verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple... But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus' practice, his last week, which Matthew chapter 24 fits into, is he would be, spend the night on the Mount of Olives and then he would come down the Mount of Olives, through the valley, and up into Jerusalem, into the temple. And he spend the day in the temple. And at night, he would come back down out of Jerusalem, through the valley, back to the Mount of So one day they're in the temple, and they're getting ready to leave, so it must be in the evening time. And the disciples, they're going, man, is this not a beautiful building? Because the temple at the time was one of the most amazing structures on planet Earth. It had been rebuilt and remodeled just a few years before Jesus was born. Spectacular building. Hard for us to wrap our mind around how magnificent this building would have been. And so the disciples are just standing in awe of it. And, and Jesus just kind of comes in there with like a Jesus move on the conversation. Anybody ever do like a Jesus move on the conversation where you're like, man, the weather's nice? And they're like, Jesus created the weather. And you're like, yeah, I get it. Like, I'm, yeah, <laughs> wasn't saying that, you know? Like, Jesus does his own move right there, which is, and the disciples, they don't, they're kind of like, oh, okay, he's, he's going to tear down the building. This is weird. We don't understand. And so it seems like they just kind of, ignore him maybe and and, but then the story goes on verse three and as he said on the mount of olives so he's come down out of jerusalem and now he's back on the mount of olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things be and what will the sign of your coming uh, and of the close of the age so what they're what they're saying is uh, they come to him privately so no crowds are around this is not a big teaching moment for everybody just a learning moment for the disciples and they're like jesus remember you said that Weird thing in the temple. What's up with that? What does that mean? Tell us about it. And so that's what Matthew chapter 24 is him telling. So there in their temporary home, the Mount of Olives, the disciples are learning. And it starts by them asking a question Do you ask questions anymore? This faith stuff, Jesus stuff, scripture st- stuff. If there's anything in you that still is hungry to learn? See, we think a sign of maturity is is we don't have any more questions. We only have answers. But a sign of spiritual maturity is that you're still hungry to learn. There are still mysteries that you want to understand. There are still passages that you want to dissect and try to figure out. You're hungry to learn. A sign of immaturity in our spiritual faith is that we stop asking questions and we believe that we know everything. See, it wasn't unusual for these men to ask questions of Jesus. You know why? Because they were disciples. And disciple literally means student. They were students of Jesus and students ask questions. It wasn't unusual for them even in the way that they were raised. They were Israelites. Jesus was an Israelite and the Israelites have been given the law of God in the Old Testament and a part of that law was instructions and how to learn the way of God inside your home. So God says when you're lying down on your bed, think about these things. Write them down on the doorposts of your house. Teach them to your children while they're in your home. How many of you uh, had a family Bible growing up? You know a family Bible? I brought one in case you uh, didn't see it. It's the biggest Bible in the whole world. This is a family Bible. Uh, I had one growing up, and then someone gave this to Amanda and I when we got married, which was an incredible gift, and I pulled it out of the attic. I mean, it was on our shelf it's a huge Bible. Imagine if I just rolled in here every week and preached out of this big dude. People would be scared of Jesus. I'm telling you what. I'd carry more authority, though. I mean, if I was really getting into it, I could just be like, boom! You know? It would be awesome. I mean, that was super loud. That's amazing. And so, if you've had a family Bible, I'm guessing, whether it's when you got married or in the house that you grew up in, if you had a family Bible, I'm guessing the inside looked a lot like this inside. Look, I'm going to do the library thi- librarian thing right here. Um... It's spotless. In fact, if I had wrapped this in plastic, you would have thought that it was brand new. I mean, it's spotless. Why? Because we've never read this. Which, you're not judging me. Why? Because this is not a Bible to be read. This is a Bible to sit somewhere to tell everybody that you are the kind of person who might read the Bible. (laughs) So it's cool that I've never read this. It's You're probably not even bothered that it was in my attic. Maybe you are. Forgiveness. Remember, if I said you just confess it, then you're not held accountable for it. (laughs) Because this is a symbol. That's okay. But listen, not every one of your Bibles should be a symbol. It's okay if you have one that looks like this, that just sits on the shelf and is pristine and spotless. But I think that you should have one that's dog-eared, and rattered and torn because you've been reading it and not just reading it. You've been reading it like a student. You've been reading it to understand the mysteries of God. And listen, that doesn't happen in this room. If you only bring your Bible into this room, it will look the same as the day you bought it, but in your home in the privacy of your own moments, within your own address, is where your soul gets anchored into the word of God, where you learn from a father, like a student of his way, and it keeps us from saying Hosanna on Sunday and crucify on Friday. The second thing I'd love for you to write down, Home is where you choose which will to take on. Home is where you choose which will to take on. I have good news for you today. God has a will for your life. I have bad news for you. You also have a will for your life. And even worse news for you, the person next to you has a will for your life. (laughs) You are constantly battling those things. There are some moments when God's will for your life and your will for your life don't line up. And there are some moments when God's will for your life and someone else's will for your life don't line up. But there's good news. Matthew chapter 26, just a few pages to the right. Jesus has just finished the Last Supper with His disciples. The burden of the cross and all that's to come along with it is starting to fall upon His shoulders. And it says in verse 30, Matthew chapter 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to where? The Mount of Olives. Skip down to verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane was an olive grove. It's very small now. If you go to Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, it looks just, it's a very small olive grove. But, you know, 2,000 years ago, it would have been very expansive. And it's at the base of the Mount of Olives, this large garden, uh, grove of olive trees. It's called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, and talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and taking with him, Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. There's the burden of what's going to happen falling on him. Verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And two other times, Jesus goes to pray. He comes back from praying. The disciples are asleep. But here's this unusual moment. Because I think that we believe that Jesus' primary instinct in fact, his, always his instinct was to just want whatever God wanted. I mean, isn't that how we think about Jesus? That, you know, life was easy for him because he never wanted anything separate from God. Because he is God. He's the son of God. But that's not true. The scripture tells us that Jesus has been tested in every way that you were tested. And if you've ever had a moment in your life where what you preferred and what God wanted did not line up, Jesus has been there. This is his moment where he wants something different than what God wants. And that's okay if you have one of those moments later today where what you're really hoping and what God actually has planned are not the same thing. It's okay as long as you have a nevertheless buried deep within your soul. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's not okay to want something different from God, if you have already chosen your way. But if you've tucked away and nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, then it's okay to have those moments where what you would prefer and what God wants are not the same. Because God has ordered this world. He ordered it through creation. He's ordered it through His Word. This past... Uh, Thursday, I was speaking to a bunch of high school students at a Christian high school here in town, which is like the most impossible group to speak to. Number one, they're teenagers, and God bless you, teenagers, but you're hard to communicate with. Amen, parents of teenagers. So I already got that obstacle. Plus, these kids go to a Christian school, which means that they've had a chapel every Thursday since the beginning of the year. So imagine what on earth there is left for me to say to them this past Thursday. And so I'm trying to think, well, how can I say creatively again, love Jesus, go to church, read your Bible, pray. And I'm like, forget all that. I'm just going to tell them the weirdest story in the Bible, and they'll remember it forever. And so that's exactly what I did. There's this weird and totally random story in the Old Testament. It's a story about the prophet Elisha. Uh, he just became kind of the main prophet because his mentor Elijah had been taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire uh, with horses of fire, which is pretty cool. And Elisha is like taking on his mantle and he's the new prophet. And that's the way God had ordered Israel at the time because the kings of Israel, they were wicked and they were wayward. They actually led people away from God. But the prophets, they were the God's anointed to lead the people of God back to God and so Elisha's like the man now and he's performed a few little miracles the word has spread about him but he's coming through this one village and there's this group of teenage boys probably at least 50 teenage boys who get together and they're totally getting ready to disrespect Elisha for whatever reason we don't know why they were going to disrespect Elisha but they were going to they were ready and so here comes Elisha and they're like we're gonna let's just really get him let's disrespect him right now and so Elisha doesn't have any hair he's bald so you can tell why this is a very important story to me. <laughs> And so they're making fun of him. They're saying things like, you know, go on up, you bald head, go on up. Meaning Elijah's been taken up to heaven. Why don't you go up to heaven? Plus, you don't have any hair. And plus, his would have been a nasty head of hair because they didn't keep it nice and short and trim like mine. So you can imagine him having real long hair on the sides but nothing on the top. It's gross. You know, maybe in a different context, you might make fun of him. But Elisha's taking it real personally in this story because... He he says that he curses these teenage boys, and all of a sudden these two bears, and not just bears, these she-bears come out of the woods, because everybody knows that a she-bear is way more fierce than a man-bear. These she-bears come and like rip to shreds at least 42 of the boys, and there were probably a bunch more than that. Those were just the slowest 42 boys, you know what I'm saying? So I'm telling these Christian kids this story, number one, because I always wanted to remember, hey, remember that chapel when that... God told that really random story of the scripture. But because also there's a very important part here, point in that story. And the point is, is that God has established an order. And anytime you and I go against that order, there's trauma. What are you saying? Like if we go against God's order, bears are going to come out of the woods? Maybe. (laughs) Definitely no more hair jokes here. (laughs) No, no, no. That's probably not going to happen to you but then I'm reading the New Testament gosh and there's this crazy story in the New Testament about this town called Corinth Corinth man if you thought Texas State was a party school Texas State didn't have anything on Corinth because Corinth was like a party city and then they became Christians but just become because they became Christians didn't mean they're partying just all left them and So they would come together to share the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we do that here where you come and you rip off a piece of the bread to remember the broken body of Jesus and you dip it in the cup to remember the blood of Jesus shed for us. Well, they were doing that too, but they built this whole evening around it and had this big massive dinner. And at the dinner where they were supposed to celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus, they just started getting drunk because that's what they were used to. And the apostle Paul says these words in the New Testament. So post Jesus's death and resurrection, He says, some of you are sick and some of you have even fallen asleep, meaning died because you got the order of the Lord's Supper wrong. You didn't come and take it in the way that it was supposed to be taken. See, there's an order to the way that God has established our lives. And you're gonna have these moments and I have these moments weekly where what I would prefer and God's order don't line up. And that's okay. That's okay. As long as in the middle of that moment, in the middle of the temptation, you go, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Can you imagine if Adam and Eve had had a nevertheless tucked deep in their soul? I really want that fruit. It looks good. It's pleasing to my eyes. I want it. Not just for my stomach, but I want it for my mind i want it for my whole being and the serpent's in my ear and he's telling me to get it it's what i prefer to rip off and eat it but nevertheless not as i will but as you will you imagine david king david man after god's own heart up late one night walking around the roof of his palace and he looks out over his city and he sees this young woman bathing and he's the king and he can have her if he wants her. All he's got to do is send a servant and he's feeling it, man. He's feeling it deep down in his stomach. Imagine if he had tucked away and nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God has ordered our lives so that we tell the truth. Sometimes we would prefer to lie because it's more convenient or it could save us some trouble. Nevertheless, we're supposed to talk well about each other. This is supposed to be a safe place among the people of God, but sometimes we prefer to gossip. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And listen, you can't put away a nevertheless in this room. You don't need one here. I doubt this is a big, huge moment of temptation for anybody. In fact, it's a relief for most of us to get around the people of God and the cares and the weights that are normally on us 24-7 are just a little bit lighter when we come to church on Sunday mornings. For most of us, this is not our primary point of temptation. So saying nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, is not that meaningful in this room. But at home, at home, Is where you will need a nevertheless. When no one's around, when there are no songs, and there's no one explaining the scripture to you, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here's where we're going to finish. Turn to two places 1 Kings chapter 11 and 2 Kings chapter 23. 1 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings, chapter 23. King Solomon, David's son, is the wisest man who ever lived. But just because you are wise one year does not mean that you will be wise the next year. And King Solomon actually started making some very, very poor poor decisions and those poor decisions started at home not in the temple not somewhere else but they started in his home he started being attracted to foreign women which is not necessarily bad in and of itself in our minds but it was their gods that he was also attracted to so instead of worshiping one true god he started worshiping all the idols of the many many wives that he was taking it says in verse 4 of chapter 11 and when solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, which is the Mount of Olives. So on the Mount of Olives, Solomon starts building all these idols. And some of the idols had different ways to be worshipped. And some of the ones that are listed here, instead of one, just one big statue that you would come and make your offerings to, there were these thin poles. And they would plant like a forest of these poles that had a face on them representing the gods. Uh, so you can imagine Solomon looking out from his palace on the mountain of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and seeing this forest of idols that he himself had built. And they remained like that. For 300 years until 2 Kings chapter 23, a king named Josiah was having a revival in his soul and he wanted to do something about it. Verse 13, and the king, this is King Josiah, who's a good king, defiled the high places. That's the places where these idols were worshiped. They were called high places that were east of Jerusalem, to the south of the Mount of Corruption. So what was once the Mount of Olives is now 300 years later known as the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidians, and for Chemish, the abomination of Moab, and on and on it goes. Verse 14, And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. So you have one king planting a forest of idols and you have another king tearing them down. Listen, your house should be a place where your faith can flourish. But I'm afraid many of us have planted things there that are a corruption to our faith and not a help. There are some things waiting on us at the address in our minds that will corrupt us, not build us up. And it may be time for you to tear those down. Patterns, habits, philosophies that are waiting on you there. No matter what you do here, no matter what commitment you make here, if you have planted corruptions in your home, the influence of this room is almost meaningless because your faith needs to be anchored in your home so that you and I don't become like those people almost 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday who on Sunday were singing Hosanna, Hosanna and on Friday were saying Crucify. And What will make that true Is if what is true in this room on Sundays is true in your room on Mondays and Fridays, Thursdays and Wednesdays. So build up in your home what needs to be built up. Let's tear down in our homes what needs to be torn down. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our homes. Whether they're temporary, permanent. Whether they're small or big. Whether they're empty or full. God, you have made that address holy. We pray that we would treat it as holy. Why don't you take just a second in the spirit of prayer. What needs to be built up in your home? What things of faith need to be built up in your home? And is there anything that God is bringing to mind through the spirit of Jesus that needs to be taken down? God speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, Amen. Once you stand to your feet, we're gonna finish.